Welcome to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on all things real estate. I'm your host, Ben Shelley. We're fortunate to have back with us today, Ryan and John from Liberty Hudson. The focus of this episode is a financing overview. We want to know as real estate investors, what's the best way to finance our deals? And even more broadly, how does this process work? For this discussion, we will ask our investors about their varied experiences, securing financing and structuring deals throughout the wider New Jersey and Connecticut area. Gentlemen, let's jump right into it. Ryan, why don't we start with you? Well, the first question that you're going to ask yourself is, I want to buy a house. How am I going to do it? Where is the money going to come from? There are a variety of paths you can take. The first question that you're going to have to figure out is, am I living there or is this an investment property? If you're living there, then you are primarily limited to what most people call conventional loans uh, or conventional mortgages, which are those backed by large government-affiliated or quasi-government institutions like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, also government agencies like the VA and FHA. In that scenario, you are generally bringing some amount of cash to the closing table, and the rest is coming from your lender. Separately, if you're looking at an investment property, you have a wide array of options at your disposal as well, and most of those will vary depending on what your plan is with the property. That generally will fall into one of two buckets. It may be a short-term flip or a long-term hold, i.e. a rental property. John, I know you've you've used many in the past. What What is your preferred method? And I guess, can you take us through some of the pros and cons of of those with which you have experience? Yeah, for sure. So I think one very powerful thing for real estate investors that may not be immediately obvious is that it is possible to buy a property as a primary occupant and also still use it for investment purposes, particularly if you're quote unquote house hacking, which is something that's talked about on places like Bigger Pockets and all throughout the internet. But the idea with house hacking is that you buy a house for your primary residency and then you finance it with primary residency financing, but you rent out a portion of it. So it's usually a multifamily property or something like that. And the huge advantage is that if you're buying a house to live in, you can put, say, 3.5% or 5% down, that being 3.5% of the total purchase price, and get financing for the rest of it, meaning that your sort of cash-on-cash returns, as in the amount of cash that you put into the property and then the amount that you return when you rent it out, are extremely high. And it's also very accessible if you don't have a lot of money saved up. That's how I got my first property. We put very little down. We lived on the first floor of the property and rented out the second floor of the property. I actually ended up moving to the basement and rented out both floors. And it turned into a huge sort of cash win for us because we had put very little down to buy the property and we're generating a lot of rental income for it. But if you're not owner-occupying it, I think your financing options, I mean, assuming you're not fabulously wealthy and can pay cash for it, and and as we may get into, there are reasons why even if you could, you might want, not want to do that. But if you're buying a property for investment purposes, I think you want to look at, am I going to, as Ryan said, uh, long-term or short-term, what I'm going to do with it? Quite frequently for properties that are in very poor condition, which are frankly the properties that we buy, and I think if you're out there as an investor, you are probably looking at buying, it's very difficult to get what's called uh, traditional financing, even, even commercial traditional financing. So normally banks will do an appraisal, they'll look at the property, and if the property has issues, in particular if they're quite serious, 
the appraiser will not recommend to the bank that they issue, say, a 30-year conforming mortgage on the property. It is possible to get, I have purchased properties with conventional mortgages. In fact, I've purchased many properties with conventional mortgages, but um, usually they're not properties that are so in such bad shape that uh, you need to totally gut them and renovate them. So a conventional mortgage in this case would be, I would put 25% down of the purchase price. That's usually what a lot of banks do for multifamily properties, and then the bank would finance the rest of it. Within the 25% that I put down, there are a multitude of options if I don't have 25% of the purchase price that I could possibly do. And that is itself its own subset of financing. So it might be important to, to distinguish here between financing from a bank which uh, is the sort of, as Ryan alluded to, uh, government-backed FHA, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, VA-type financing, or a bank that still does Fannie Mae-compliant loans, which are possible for investment properties, um, versus private financing, which is um, more of the hard money, debt partners, equity partners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that dichotomy is, is important to understand because quite frequently, like the exit strategy for properties is ultimately getting traditional bank financing. But to acquire them, you might have to do all sorts of creative, non-institutional, non-bank financing options. So the class of the class of loans that John was just talking about at the end is generally referred to as bridge financing. The theory being that this is serving as a bridge to a more permanent financing option. Yeah. So perhaps we can go through a hypothetical property and demonstrate the different options at hand. And that might be illustrative of, you know, why you would choose one option versus another and then kind of explain it. So maybe we can do even a property that, that you and I just bought. So we're buying a property in um, South Orange, which is a fairly affluent suburb of New York City in Essex County. And the initial purchase price, let's just use a round number, is 400000 So say we, we came to an agreement with the the seller to buy the property for $400,000. Obviously, point one is we don't have $400,000. So we're going to get some type of financing to buy the property. Point two is that the property is in such a bad condition that we probably, 99% probably couldn't get traditional bank financing for the property. So if we could have gotten bank financing, what that would have looked like is probably we would have to have put down 20 or 25% of the 400000 as a down payment to the bank, and then the bank would finance the rest of it. And th that process would be anything that you're familiar with if you've ever gotten a mortgage. So, uh, you know, financial documents from us, an appraisal, blah, 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 blah. But basically that option was off the table because the house was in too poor of shape to do that. And beyond that, those typically take best case 30 to 45 days, but oftentimes 60 to 90. And when you're buying from a distressed seller or from somebody who is offering you a pretty good deal so that they can get out of there tomorrow, you don't have the luxury of waiting 60 to 90 days for your lender to be ready with a loan. Right. So once that option was off the table, the second sort of line of analysis is, well, what do we want to do with the property? And in this case, we want to flip it. So we want to go into the property, fix it up, and then sell it for, for profit. So at that point, our options were limited to, we could figure out how to finance the money all of ourselves. So how to get $400,000 just from either our friends or, or whatever, and we can talk about how we might want to structure that. Or we could go to a, as Ryan mentioned, a bridge financer, which in this context would be a hard money financer, and get essentially a loan secured by the property, but not using, uh, not conforming to the traditional um, conventional institutional bank 
procedures. So do you want to talk a little bit about hard money financing and how that process works? Sure. Uh, and just as a point of distinction, I think it's important to keep in mind here that your capital stack, which is the summation of your means of capital raising, it, gen- it consists of two classes. It's debt, i.e. loans, and equity, which is akin to ownership. So you can have a debt partner who is issuing a loan to you, and you can have an equity partner who is making a contribution generally in return for a share of the profits and for a share of ownership. So I think a hard money lender would be a debt partner in this context. Right. So a hard money lender offers a variety of advantages, the first of which is that they move far more quickly than a traditional lender moves. In addition to that, they exist essentially for the sole purpose of financing projects like the one that John just outlined. So they understand that the property is in a state of disrepair and they understand that this is an investment property and that this is a business play for you. So they take into account what you are purchasing the property for and the amount that you plan to put into the property in the way of renovations. And they do this and weigh that against what they perceive the after repair value or in other words, the market value post-renovations. And they determine the amount of leverage that they deem acceptable, and they will loan up to that amount. Now, one of the trade-offs for that is this money is expensive. It's akin to a loan shark in the real estate space. So whereas the conventional loans that John discussed earlier may be in the neighborhood of 4 or 5 or maybe approaching 6%, these loans are generally 9, 10, 11%. And in some parts of the country where there isn't as much cash around and there aren't as many of these hard money lenders, I, I've seen them go as high as 14, 15, 16%. On top of that, you typically pay certain lender fees or origination fees, um, which are generally a percentage of the loan amount upfront. So it may be 1% of the loan, it may be 2% of the loan. So if you're doing a deal like John discussed earlier, where you're purchasing for 400000 with a renovation budget of 200000 you'll be f- leveraged quite highly and you may be looking at a loan amount of $550,000. And if you're paying- Including renovation costs. Right. So that's rolling some renovation costs into it, which is another benefit of working with a hard money lender because most traditional financing options do not have that option embedded in it. So with this higher loan amount, you're paying these origination fees as a percentage of that loan amount. And it's not uncommon for them to be maybe 2%. We generally see them in the 1% to 2% range, but 2% on a $550,000 loan amount is $11,000 right up front before you even held the property for a day. So if you take into account the fact that you're paying this, these two points or somewhere close to that up front, plus you're paying the equivalent of 9 or 10 or 11% on a monthly basis, this this type of financing relative to a more conventional means of financing can be quite expensive. And normally these loans are due within, say, 12 to 24 months, as opposed to a conventional loan, which might be 30 years or something around that range. And in addition to that, these are interest-only loans. So with a traditional loan, you have an amortization schedule which 
depicts how the loan pays itself off over the term of the loan, which may be 30 years. So even after a year, you may have paid off a little bit of the loan, but on a hard money loan, the loan is interest only. So there's no pay down whatsoever. So if you borrow $550,000 at the end of the loan term, you have to pay back $550,000. I was just going to say, I think it would be helpful as well for, for listeners to sort of recognize that when we talk about the context of hard money versus conventional, it can sound like a hard money loan, for example, with a 12 to 24 month amortization period is only for maybe like a flip scenario and a conventional mortgage would only be for a rental scenario. They're not mutually exclusive, that you could use hard money maybe if you don't have a lot of money to, to put it down and refinance at the end of that term. Have you guys used that as a method for, for rental properties or for properties you want to hold longer? Certainly. The Important thing to keep in mind is understanding what your exit strategy is. So I've used hard money for rental property, and that's generally done with an understanding of how the hard money lender looks at it and ultimately how a bank will look at it when I go to refinance. So I may buy it with hard money, hold it for six months, and start the refinance process with a traditional lender after maybe some renovations have been done, after I've retenanted the property and gotten the rent roll higher. And at the end of the day, the hard money lender just wants to be paid back. So as long as I have an understanding and a realistic understanding of what my exit strategy is, you can generally use any type of financing for any type of purpose. You just have to know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, the rental strategy that that Ryan is alluding to. You don't have to do it with hard money, but it's often called the Burr strategy, which is buy, renovate, rent, refinance, and then repeat. So the idea is when you buy, you could buy it with whatever financing you can possibly get. But in many cases, if the property is in very poor condition, it makes sense to do hard money. And then when you renovate it and hopefully get it tenanted, now all of a sudden you have an asset that's worth a lot more and you can refinance, which means that you're going to be switching from a hard money lender to a conventional lender, but hopefully at a much higher price. So maybe you bought the house, say, say we were holding this South Orange property I mentioned, we would want the property to say appraise at maybe $800,000 or $700,000 so that we can refinance to a conventional mortgage and take that as the new basis, the new valuation of the property. But to return to this specific example, it's still important to note that even in the hard money scenario, you need to put down a down payment to get the loan. So um, it's not like you can fund 100%. I mean, maybe there are some uh, hard money lenders out there that would do that. But in general, you have to put a down payment to get the loan from the hard money lender. And even within that amount of money put down, there can still be creative ways to structure it. So it's not like, again, this $400,000 home, say so you have to put maybe 10% down of the after repair value. So say I have to put 10% down of 600,000, which might be $60,000. Maybe I don't have $60,000 or I don't want to spend $60,000 to buy this property. What can I possibly do to do that? And we both have done and continue to do in the past is bring in other partners. Those could be equity or debt partners. They might not be known as hard money lenders, but they might be friends, people in our network, other real estate investors that just want to have ways to invest their money. So for example, we might bring in a partner that says, hey, why don't you pay, why don't you give us $60,000, which is the entire down payment of the property. We're going to loan the other $540,000. In return for you putting down $60,000, you get a share of the uh, amount of money that we make when we sell the property. So that person might be 
essentially an equity partner. So they would own a percentage of the property, either the property directly or through an entity, an LLC. And maybe in a different episode, we can talk about the, the legal structure of some of this stuff, but they can own a percentage of the property. And then when the property is sold, they will get returned a percentage of the sale price. Also, something that I've seen in the past as an area that is often overlooked by newer investors is the fact that you may be undercapitalized. So in John's example or in our example earlier, let's say your purchase price is $400,000. You're renovating, you're putting $200,000 in for renovations. You may think, okay, I need $600,000 and the lender will finance 90% of that. So simple math, loan amount of $540,000 and an equity partner bringing $60,000 to the table on paper seems like it would work. But what people often fail to adequately address is the need for operating capital. So during that time, not only are you paying taxes and insurance and utilities and snow removal and all of the other costs associated with homeownership during that time period, but you are also paying that high interest rate that we alluded to earlier, which in this scenario would be somewhere in the neighborhood of $5,000 a month. So that capital need isn't $60,000. It, it's probably closer to $125,000 in addition to the fact that you're going to want some operating capital for fronting renovation costs and paying all these ancillary fees that you're going to need cash for and that you may not have available at your whim from your hard money lender. Yeah, that's a, that's a super important critical point. And using partners to sort of front that cost, you can structure that in every way. I mean, in, in literally an in, in infinite amount of ways. There really is no market for how to do that. You could bring on a partner as an equity partner and say you own part of the property. You could bring on a partner as a debt partner and say, I'm just lending the other 10% of the you know total amount that I need to, to have from you. You could have quasi-equity partners where you can have an agreement to essentially buy them out at an interest rate. You can do however you want, whatever you want, and you can raise more money too. Say you, if you think, hey, I need $120,000 because my lender will give me 90% of the after repair value, you could raise more money than that because maybe it's more advantageous for you to do that to loan less money. You could raise all of the money that you need to purchase a property and renovate it from a passive investor or maybe another active investor. So that a lot of times newer investors are constrained by just their imagination and, and their lack of knowledge about how to structure these things. So it's important to realize that you can get money from other people to invest in real estate and structure it however you want. We can even go to a different episode about how we structured deals because I think it's complex. But Well, well uh, I'm glad you said that because as a perfect transition point, we definitely will want to follow this up with more conversations about uh, what to expect uh, on your holding and, and what to expect at closing and how to maybe factor in ARV. Someone mentioned after renovation value, we didn't go into so much about it, but talk about how you calculate out whether or not a deal works for you at your numbers. Just sort of in summation for this episode, guys, I'd love to hear just maybe a general advice. We've done this before to your everyday investor who maybe is either just getting started or maybe lacks a little bit of that imagination John was talking about to being successful from a financing side moving forward. You may think that from listening to us, we are evangelical about raising money and doing as much as you can. And while that is true to an extent, it shouldn't be taken lightly, the responsibility that comes with being a custodian of somebody else's hard-earned dollars. 
And so if you're going to do that, make sure you've left no stone unturned and make sure you are treating this with the care that you would treat your own hard-earned money. And at the end of the day, you are offering this person an opportunity to invest, but there is a lot of risk associated with that opportunity. And that responsibility largely falls on your shoulders. I would say for the, the newer investor, definitely take advantage, if you can, of the primary residency opportunity to house hack or whatever the equivalent might be if you want to flip, because it's so powerful to be able to get involved in real estate investing by putting three and a half percent or five percent down of the purchase price. I almost consider it like your primary residency card. Like, can you play the card? You know, if you don't currently own a house, then you can play that card. And man, wouldn't it be awesome to get, you know, a, an, an amazing property by putting 5% down that you can rent out for a tremendous amount while you live there or even sell by doing some small improvements while you live there and to only have 5% of the, the purchase price at play. If you look at your, you know, your cash on cash returns, which we can discuss uh, investor metrics in a different episode, if you look at that, it's going to be astronomical. You're going to be doing amazing. So if you're just starting out, definitely see if you can take advantage of that. If you're not ready to jump in head first into whatever real estate market you live in right now, I don't know who you're doing you are. it wrong. You're doing you're it doing wrong. It wrong. <laughs> and that's your that's our legal eagle, John Erico. <laughs> guys, <laughs> throw caution to the wind. <laughs> seriously. Well, thank you guys as always. I know I appreciate this. Our listeners appreciate this. And thanks for your time and your expertise. And thank you for listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on all things real estate. We will continue to bring you the best and brightest the real estate world has to offer as we leave no stone unturned in helping you, the everyday investor. Thanks for listening.